Thanks for downloading Looking Glass, a podcast series from the Institute of Physics about what we can learn from different voices in society. I'm Angela Saini, a science journalist and author who looks at how science sits in the world, the politics of it, the funding of it, the biases in it. In this series, I'm hosting discussions about some of the major challenges facing the world. There's no topic too big, including the climate crisis and healthcare and inequality. I'm inviting experts from different disciplines, including some physicists, to share their work and experience and see what insights there are in these conversations as we look to the future. In this episode, we'll be discussing big data and AI, those mega systems that promise to improve our lives, but sometimes also worry us. As someone who learned to code at university 20 years ago, I've always been fascinated by the promise of machines that can think like humans. But as we inch closer to that possibility, how responsible are researchers for the programs they create? When an algorithm sends us down a misinformation rabbit hole, whose fault is it? The platforms that host the content? The governments that set regulation? The engineers who design the algorithms? Or does the fault lie with ourselves for following the rabbit down that hole? My guests today are Jansu Jansa and Shiv Malik. Jansu is a philosopher and the founder and director of the AI Ethics Lab, where she and her team provide ethics analysis and guidance for researchers and computer engineers. She thinks that the ethics of big data and AI need to be considered from the beginning, that those designing the AI tools and preparing datasets have a moral responsibility to ensure that their systems don't harm people. Jansu is joined by Shiv Malik, who's the head of growth at Streamer, a peer-to-peer network for real-time data exchange. He's also an author and former investigative journalist for The Guardian. Shiv is all about shifting power back to the digital citizen, making it possible for the everyday person to have more control over their own data. I began by asking Jansu and Shiv to define big data and AI. Well, when we talk about big data, basically the phrase was quite literal. It is the volume of data that is so big that it's very difficult to process. In our everyday lives, we all generate data. So when we are using our computers, our phones, uh, our credit cards, all of these actions are generating data and that is also forming uh, a part of the data. So it's not a totally different uh, data, but it is now addition of the data that you are talking about. And when we are talking about AI, I mean, it is the systems that use decision-making processes, which then allow them to manipulate their environment. So artificial intelligence in the sense that they have outcomes that will affect the environment. So I think we have to take a step back and just separate out what AI actually breaks down into And it's three distinct components. So first of all, you have algorithms, right? And algorithms are just complicated sets of instructions. Uh, And they've been around for a long while. And often we blame a lot on algorithms. uh, And that's not always the case because you've got the second thing, which is machine learning. So that's like a step up from just simple instructions, if you want. Uh, And it's an attempt by computers to kind of spot patterns and try and implement those patterns in some sort of formulated way. 
right? So that's like, you can see how that's like another step up. And then you have AI, right? Which is where machines become, uh, do this machine learning autonomously. So they've taught themselves how to spot the patterns and then derive information from that and then and then go back and spot more patterns and keep going and keep going. And in a sense, I want to live in that world uh, where we have artificial intelligence. And certainly we live in a world already where we have machine learning, right? You sort of look at your calendar and you have automatic scheduling and it starts to pick up on some of the habits that you have uh, or predictive text, for example, right? And, and it's incredibly um, convenient and it's liberating us from the kind of drudgery of, you know, all these boring tasks that we'd otherwise have someone else employed to do. But the question is, who's doing the liberating, right? So who controls those algorithms, those machine learning software and the AI? Or even even worse than that, sometimes most of the stuff is being carried out by developers in a faraway country. Um, So it's supposed to look all fancy and be AI and machine learning, but actually it turns out it's just like more developers working on very cheap wages somewhere uh, on the other side of the world. So for me, the big ethical question is, you know, who owns those algorithms and the software behind machine learning and AI? Uh, because I believe in modernity, right? I, I, I believe that the future will be better than the past. And actually, we, currently now, that, that isn't clear for most people. Um, we've seen a lot of sort of destruction uh, through the pandemic uh, and, and economic inequality. And, and, and so not everyone is behind that idea anymore. And so for me, you know, who controls the future, actually to use the, the title of Jaron Lanier's book, is really a vital and a deeply ethical question to ask. Because if it's just a very small group of people who control that future and who make the profit from it, um, that's certainly not a future I want to believe in. And Shiv, so you're a journalist by background. Can you explain mm. to me how you segued from journalism to, to working in AI? Yeah, it's not really a natural progression, I guess. If you'd asked me a long time ago, perhaps when I was a teenager, what my favourite job would be, it would be uh, to be have been an investigative journalist at The Guardian. So I kind of made it and then realised that the industry that I'd loved so long had sort of fallen apart. You know, if you look at what was happening and what's been happening to the media, um, it, uh, a lot of the revenue that used to flow into newspapers uh, has got sucked up by uh, by Google and Facebook, right? So it's the advertising revenue. And there was this moment where I deleted my Facebook page in I think at tw- 2012. Um, and it was so strange an event. Um, uh, I, I, this was out of protest of uh, kind of Facebook's IPO at the time that the Channel 4 News called me on and they said, like, you know, what have you done? Explain yourself. Um, and uh, and so I said, look, you know, I don't want people to be data slaves anymore. Uh, and I think, um, you know, people should wake up to this. So in 2017, I, I finally left The Guardian and I joined a uh, an open source project called Streamer. Uh, it's sort of a collective of people who all believe in decentralizing the data economy. Um, and basically, in order to get the the front end outcomes that you want, where individuals actually have control over their uh, data, uh, where it goes, how it's used and, and who makes the money from it, you've got to kind of build the back end infrastructure, the kind of roads and rails, if you want, um, so individuals can actually exploit that. Okay, so what are those kind of roads and rails for individuals uh, wanting to take part in the data economy look like? Well, very simply, you need a way to move the data around. Um, So, you know, do you put it on a thumb drive and and send it? No, you don't do that. You need something that scales. Uh, You need to have a marketplace for discovery of that data. And finally, you need to 
sort of have a payment system that can make these micropayments to lots of people all the time, every time their data sells. And so that's also quite a difficult system to set up. So it, it encompasses basically all those three elements in one. There are so many ways in which technology has been built around this world of big data and AI, some of it positive, some of, as you mentioned, negative. But Jansu, can you talk about some of the positives here? Is, is there some good out there in the world of big data in ways in which we've benefited? I think that's that's a very easy yes, because if you just look at how you would not just drop your phone and give up all the apps, that just shows that we enjoy using these AI systems that are learning from big data. So I think our everyday behavior shows that we prefer using AI systems. And if I just make it very personal, like, I do prefer using Google rather than going to the library every time I have a question or, you know, writing an um, email rather than sending a letter. And this is just our everyday lives. You know, if you think about the more complex systems like health technology. So, yes, of course, if you have um, systems that can predict uh, rare health conditions in a way that the doctors, physicians have a hard time predicting, that's excellent. That's great because that just is one more uh, hard task uh, allocated outsourced to a system. So we certainly benefit from them. I don't think there, and I think that's why this is a hard discussion. We want to make sure that we keep all the benefits and keep getting more benefits while we eliminate or limit the negative effects as much as possible. Because otherwise it will be sort of easier. We would say that this is absolutely evil and we have to get rid of the whole thing. <laughs> and that's that's not something we can say, unfortunately. Well, one of the complexities here is that, um, you know, when I learned to code, I learned very quickly that what we are doing is taking very complex uh, analog information from the real world and trying to simplify it down in a way that a computer can process into kind of binary digital information. How do modern day computer scientists, uh, people who work in AI, how do they do that? How do they translate this messy human world into something that a computer can understand? Jansu? They are not making sense of these complexities. You could say they are giving us observations about correlations and they cluster events, they cluster um, actions, types of things that occur um, together in some sense. And we don't know the causation of or the relationship between these correlated events. But well, the bad thing about it is that not knowing the causation is a huge problem, not all the time, but in many cases, because then you don't know how to interfere with the situation. Um, but the other thing is that the good part of it is that it gives us um, observations that we previously did not see. So it, it's almost like starting point of a scientific method. It basically says, hey, here are the things that correlate. Now go and figure out what was the causation. At, at that point, the point, the, the right thing to do is not to blame AI for not telling you more, but rather use other methods that we have developed until now to figure out, well, okay, so the AI system says this is an existing occurrence. Why? And, and use other tools to figure that out. And uh, so Shiv, coming back to when you're talking about what happens on big news websites, which are controlled by editors, where journalists produce information and it's humans who are deciding everything all the way through. In that sense, then, um, Facebook and Google, which are using algorithms to decide what is more popular, what will people actually want to read, they're still using content created by people. In that sense, it's more democratic, isn't it? It's not that... They are um, they're necessarily doing anything wrong. They're just they're just using the information that they have around them in the world and giving us what we want. So can we blame 
the technologists or the engineers that they're just giving us more of what, what we've asked for. Oh, for sure. You can definitely blame them. There's a motive behind all of this, which is that they almost all social media platforms want to keep you engaged. You know, I'll confess, I'm very addicted to Twitter. And I know why that is, because I'm waiting for the retweet. I'm waiting for the like from someone else, right? So that's kind of social validation. I'm waiting as well for new pieces of information, small nuggets in the world that I can kind of grasp onto and analyze and think about and then share with my friends, right? All of this is kind of micro adrenaline bursts uh, that we've all, in some sense, become addicted to. Now, when it comes to feeding you new therefore what you're doing is feasting on information that either validates you or uh, doesn't necessarily tell you anything new that the algorithm will pick up on so if we could, for example there's a really good documentary i uh, heard it was a podcast on uh, on what was going on with youtube and how people just fall down these rabbit holes because the algorithm will just serve you more and more content that slightly pushes out the kind of uh, the kind of envelope as to where you might be comfortable with so you actually it's like a frog boiling you don't really notice that suddenly you've now become addicted to to qanon right and that's like not funny because it turns out there's literally millions of people who love these conspiracy theories. They find their own sense of identity and worth within these videos. So it's, um, and, and who, whose fault is that? We, we all have a predilection to conspiracy theories, sure, uh, and they've been around for a long time, but it seems like they're far more pronounced than ever before. I, I'm just following up on Shiv's explanation, but also your question, Angela. So I think there is one thing that in the question, there's a part that we should be careful about. So when you say that, you know, you make the decision, like they are feeding you the things that you want to see. I think we are sort of idealizing the human decision-making capacity. (laughs) So, you know, when we go back to these problems, these systematic issues uh, with our rationality and autonomous decision-making, we can see how our supposed decision-making can be exploited Uh, by targeting these uh, weaknesses. So we know that we have an appetite for uh, conspiracy theories and these narratives rather than statistical numbers and very clearly explained um, scientific information, for example. So when you want to learn more about vaccines, if YouTube wants to keep you on the website, it's not going to work if they keep showing you the doctors explaining how the vaccines work. But it's going to be very exciting If you have these personal stories and um, these conspiracy theories about big pharma without intending to, then the platform keeps sending you towards a particular type of thinking, a particular type of um, information, which then affects your then rational decision making. But at that point, your reasoning is already based on skewed information. I work in this area of pseudoscience and misinformation. And what we know is that we are all susceptible to misinformation, depending on you know where our personal interests lie. So how can we be sure that we are making the right decisions when we're navigating online? And doesn't it deny a little bit of... I mean, if we put all the blame at Facebook and YouTube and Google, then aren't we denying the fact that actually people should be able to make their own decisions about this? Shiv? I mean, I would again refer to what Jansu said in that regard, right? There is, we're really predictable when it comes to our irrationality and people know how to exploit that for their own ends, right? Because modern life is incredibly, incredibly complicated already. From another perspective, if you want, why on earth would anyone buy an Alexa, right? Well, it's wonderfully convenient. Um, except we all know, because it's, it's well documented, that there have been actual human beings listening to those conversations on behalf of Amazon. And people seem not to care so much, right? And then, you know, that whole 
whole uh, argument, I think, about privacy is, is sort of fallen because actually people put that convenience above certain other things. They simply just don't have time to constantly analyze themselves and we shouldn't expect them to. And that's the great failure, I think, of political economy uh, uh, is that we haven't re- we've expected far too much of individuals um, because we, we think in that vein, right? That, oh, look, everyone has free choice and free will and free autonomy. And well, no, in, a, in, a, in, in the modern world in which we live, we should give people uh, uh, respect and, and realise that they are uh, irrational in these very predictable ways and we shouldn't allow other people to manipulate them. But isn't that exactly the opposite of what you've been arguing for? Because what you've said is that if we give people respect and the freedom to choose what they want to look at, then, um, you know, this is the argument that's made by companies like Facebook, that we are allowing all this content to be on our sites. You're choosing what you want to look at. You're choosing what you want to click on. Um, wouldn't regulating the internet or or curbing that those kind of democratic platforms then be doing exactly the opposite? Well, no, because there's an asymmetry of power, right? And this is the thing. This is kind of, I was going to almost ask Jansi this question uh, earlier on, which is like, how do AI ethicists see political economy? So you have a huge asymmetry of power. You have thousands of developers versus me as an individual. I'm not going to win. I'm never going to win. It's never going to happen. So for example, take my printer, right? Under digital ma- uh, management rights laws, right? The, the printer, but in everyone's face is problem. Right? You can't just get uh, ink uh, from anywhere you have to buy their ink right because they've got a law that says you can only buy our ink and we'll sue anyone who tries to develop any other solution to also put ink into our printer so law backs them up politics backs them up um, and and so you're stuck right and so when the printer pings you early it turns out very early in many cases that your printer's now running out of ink and then what do you do you go off and you buy that ink that turns out to be the most expensive pound for pound thing you can buy in the world right that's fantastic like why is printer ink so expensive it shouldn't be it's just because we've set up these systems that allow us to be also manipulated and empower these companies at the heart of it all and and that sort of stuff is really quite nuts so if you don't bring a political economy to, to bearing you don't realize this kind of asymmetry of power right from the get-go you're never really going to get anywhere jansu what are your thoughts on that i have so many <laughs> um <laughs> So one thing I think um, we should talk about is it's going back to the rationality. So again, another um, big work in the area is Nudges by Sunstein and Taylor. And the whole idea is about choice architecture, right? How can we put the default positions in such a way that affects people's choices? Because we know that people usually go with default, whatever is the default, even if it's bad for them, because we have a tendency not to change things, not to spend time on making a decision. How do you put the um, food in the cafeteria? So if you want people to eat healthier, should you put the dessert right in front or should you put it in a way that they have to ask for it? And all of these affect our decisions. So clearly we are extremely susceptible to manipulation of all sorts. And I think when we talk about democracy in the sense that, you know, the Facebook or or these platforms being democratic, I don't think that's what democracy is. Because if we think that democracy means that we get to decide everything, that requires us to have an expert understanding of health, expert understanding of finance, expert understanding of politics, expert understanding of international relations. We don't have these expert understandings of any of these things. And that would be crazy to think that we do. The democratic system sort of works because we trust in representatives and representatives' expertise. So we choose whatever the representative is 
um, representing our uh, opinions best, but we still leave expertise to them. We don't then interfere with every single decision. Um, so I think when we say democracy, we are sort of using the term in a way that manipulates this discussion to a certain direction. Um, Shiv, then turning to you, when a newspaper editor decides what they want to put on their front page, what they want to cover and what they don't want to cover, that is manipulation of a kind because that's telling the audience what they can and can't read. So do you feel that some forms of manipulation are okay? Um, You know, that it's really about intention rather than the act itself? So look, these are really deep uh, questions and, you know, the, the behavioral scientists uh, and economists who've been working in this field uh, have to then and, and have been trying to answer these questions themselves, right? You're like, oh, once you've realized that we're irrational in these very predictable ways, um, it turns out you can use that for good or for bad, right? So is it okay if we're using it for good, but not okay if we're using it to make money, well, for instance? Right. And the answer is, should you be using it at all? And I think you end up with a system of, well, again, you have to have be, I think, informed by um, asymmetries of power, right? So if it's just all three of us in a room, I think the state or anyone else looking in on that should be like, we're all fairly like, reasonably intelligent people and we're having this discussion. And yet we're all gently manipulating each other by, by positing arguments. We're not all perfectly rational. I'll use inflections in my voice at some point, or I'll, you know, I'll ask a question and try to boost someone's ego, something like that, right? There's lots of these micro manipulations going on all the time. But we don't fundamentally, I don't think, have an asymmetry of power within all of us. Now, if it was just me or Jansu versus, as I said, a thousand developers or the law, right, um, was backed by a, a, a trillion dollar company, that becomes a very different game, right? And I think that's when you have to ask yourself more deeply ethical questions about what you're doing. And I think maybe we've become a bit more liberal to understanding that we are pliable human beings and we're not we're not just staunch uh, uh, machines that actually just make all of our choices ourselves you know the marketing itself is is going back to sort of freudian times uh, uh, sort of the post freudian era in marketing like that that's a giant manipulation too all advertising is that as well um, uh, and so these things aren't new. The, the question why it's become so pressing, I think, is because we've understood the, the science a bit better um, and, and therefore the, the power of it has grown, but also the, the power behind those, uh, those tools has also grown vastly, uh, making these things even more unfair. Chansu, coming to you, um, you work with computer scientists, with engineers. How um, aware are they of the power that they have, the moral responsibility that they have over the technology and the people who use their technology? Um, I would say quite little, actually, because I think perhaps it's also a human tendency. um, We, I think, tend to think that we are not that powerful because I mean, it is true that you are often a part of the whole um, puzzle. And unless you are in a leadership position of a very influential company, um, you often single-handedly don't hold much power. So it's easy to say, and that means I don't have much power, so I don't have much responsibility. Of course, that's not true because there are many decisions that could be taken on individual level as you are designing uh, AI tools or preparing data sets. And those decisions um, will within themselves have ethical implications and they will have impacts. So I think um, sometimes rightly, but most of the time not so rightly, they think that they are 
just one of the many decision makers and that allows them to not take so much responsibility. Hmm. Um, that's pretty scary. <laughs> you know, people I know. aren't even thinking about that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know, I've seen this for myself as a science journalist that individual scientists and engineers can be so uh, absorbed with making a breakthrough, of getting to that next stage of a technology, that they can sometimes lose sight of the bigger picture, where, you know, where that technology could end up. Do you think um, scientists, researchers, uh, tech companies are asking the right questions when it comes to developing these technologies right at the beginning? Um, so I think the for the AI systems to be safe and for the benefit of the society, the right questions that they need to be asking is the ethical impact, the social impact of these technologies. And I think those questions are not being asked, especially, I can say, safely not systematically being asked, and they are not asked in the right manner. So when we talk about ethics, we are talking about making sure that the systems do not harm people, the systems do not interfere with individual autonomy, uh, they don't cause injustices. And sometimes these can be clear, but a lot of the times you have to think about what is the right thing to do, uh, and you don't know what is the right thing to do. A lot of the times when we talk about ethics in this setting, it sounds like developers are just completely careless. They don't want to think about it. And we just want to tell them, hey, be nice, like be thoughtful. That's not it. That's much more than this. What we want to say is that we know a lot of the times you want to think about this, but here are the processes to think about this. Here are the ways that it should be incorporated into your workflow, because um, we are at the moment sort of demanding an extra thing from the developers without a systematic uh, structure where this is a part of their job, where they get expert support from ethics experts and where their leadership is in agreement that this is something that they should spend their time on. But doesn't it come back to the point that Shiv has been making that it's really about the master that you serve? If you're an engineer working at Google, say, and the ultimate most important thing is the bottom line, profit, then you're going to work towards that goal. Um, and whether ethics issues come in there or not, that's still going to be the first and the last thing that you think about. So I think um, a lot of the times ethical questions are also business-related risks. So if you have a um, high ethics risk, then this could affect your bottom line and it could affect your reputation. As a result, it could affect your business benefits. Again, a lot of the times the costs of taking ethics into account might be not so high, especially considering the, the risks. So there are the types of questions where the developers need to make decisions like in design or, or data selection. And there are these larger questions that the co company as a whole needs to make a decision at the leadership level. And there you might have a uh, a bigger conflict of interest, especially if this, the ethical issue could put the project uh, completely at halt. But this also might mean that the risk is so high that you definitely should take this into account because um, the consequence of not taking it into account might be affecting your business much more severely. Are there any other technological or social or regulatory uh, methods that are out there that might help tech companies build a more equitable relationship with their users? I don't think there are fully developed models. There are ideas and solutions for specific questions. A lot of the times, not fully complete solutions, but at least helpful solutions. Um, but I don't think there are... Um, 
full models that I am aware of. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about things like, for example, solutions around algorithmic bias. Like there is not a solution, but nobody can say do this and it will be gone. But there are solutions and ways of making your AI systems less discriminatory. Or they, there are models to make sure that your users understand the terms and conditions <laughs> that they are agreeing to. There are ways to make the privacy settings accessible rather than um, somewhere hidden there and you have to click, click, click and eventually change it. And in the first update, it's gone to default again. So there are ways of solving like individual issues, but I don't think there is like a great model. And I don't think there is a great model for any one of these particular issues either. And in kind of an imaginary world, is there something that you would like to see happen? Is there, you know, one or a number of big things that could happen in the future that would really change change the game and, and make us more empowered as digital citizens? Um, yeah, I think there's, there are many things that can be done. I mean, um, so I, I'll start with what I work on, which is um, trying to ensure that all development, all innovation involves an ethical process that runs alongside. So just like think of it like design decisions that you have ethics decisions all the time and taking note of this and making sure that these are done clearly and rigorously, I think will have quite a significant effect in helping things get much, much, much better. Similarly, I think like individual aspects that I just mentioned, of course, if we have clear processes about how to deal with algorithmic bias, at least the process, maybe not exactly always hitting the perfect solution, but um, agreed upon standards, that would be very helpful. Getting rid of these, by the way, I accept buttons, acting that, that allows companies to act as if we consent to things would be great because that is just a, a theater that we are playing, a consent theater that we are playing and, and no one should believe in that. So there are all these small things and in a bigger sense, um, I think integrating ethics into innovation process and also making sure there is competition among companies so that, you know, we cannot say that I choose to use this social network. If there is no other social network, if there are no competitions around, then that, that's not a meaningful choice. You are either in or you are out of the system. So there has to be competition. There has to be choices. Users should be able to understand them. So it should be provided to them in um, understandable manner and content. And the ethical decision-making in every level from developer to leadership should be a part of the whole game. And Shiv, then finally coming to you, do you feel that um, there is enough positive thinking of the kind that your organisation and Jansu's uh, work is doing to create a better future here? Do you feel positive or do, do you feel scared? Maybe those two things in equal measure uh, in some senses. <laughs> I think we're on the precipice and um, it, it could almost go either way. But actually, as we're recording this, uh, the uh, European Commission is about to publish uh, the first of three data acts, um, and they're all really exciting. Um, and where Europe tends to go, the rest of the world follows in some suit or another, as has happened with GDPR. Um, and the first of those things to be published will be the, the Data Governance Act, um, which 
uh, basically allows these things called data unions that I've been talking about, or data trusts, or data intermediaries. There's a whole slew of language that basically describes the same thing. Uh, data cooperatives, uh, the list goes on. It, it just gives them legal standing. And I think the vision there is that in the future, all personally generated data will have to be brokered by institutions that have what's in, in the legislation known as a fiduciary duty, right? A legal duty, uh, an obligation of care to the people who generate that information, which is wonderful. If it gets passed, that's a really wonderfully kind of o- wonderful opening salvo in, in this war of control over big data, right? Who owns it? Who generates it? Uh, uh, who monetize it? Who shares it? And for what purpose? All of that will start to be settled in one direction, which is, it turns out, the people who create the information should have a say, a really large say, uh, and be in control over what happens with that information. And I think that's wonderful. So would you go back to Facebook if you were able to monetize your data, whatever Facebook owns about you? That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I really... I really miss Facebook because there's so many things I've missed uh, from my group of friends, right? They're, they're not on Twitter, generally speaking. Uh, they're, they're on Facebook or Instagram. And, and I have tended not to favour both those platforms as they're owned by the same company. And yeah, I would love to go back to Facebook. And I would love to, in a sense, um, also be able to take that information and know that it's also being utilised, not just by Facebook, but by anyone really, who wanted to, to make good of that. Um, yeah, I think I would. I think I would. I've never been asked that before. It's a very good question. <laughs> so wait a second. Um, in, doesn't that mean that everything that was wrong with Facebook, like manipulation and everything, stays there? But is, isn't it? The, the, I think the Angela's question to me sounds like, would you sell your soul if you can make money off it? And it sounds like you just said yes. <laughs> is, that like, is this what just happened? <laughs> That's also a really good point. No, it's not that I can make money from it. It's just that I know that there's a way of... of I know that they don't have a monopoly and a silo over that information. And and, and in a sense, um, I mean, I'm in a weird position uh, in that I'd have to kind of live up to a particular claim that I wanted from Facebook, which is the ability to port my data out of it properly mm-hmm. and in my control rather than just in their control. So it's not just about the remuneration because that really would be fairly minimal, maybe, you know, 20 to 70 to $80 a year or something like that, right? Um it, so it wasn't just for the money; it would be for the for the, for for that element that that it can be done, and that therefore they don't hold a monopoly anymore. Well, thank you so much, um, Shiv and Jansu, for joining us for this episode. It's been fascinating listening to you, and I do feel quite more positive now. I, I did leave Twitter and Facebook over the last couple of years, but maybe like you, Shiv, one day I might come back. <laughs> thank you so much, Angela, for having me on. Uh, it's been uh, wonder- wonderfully uh, revelatory. Thank you so much. It was great to join the conversation. Looking Glass is a Chalk and Blade production for the Institute of Physics. The producer is Fatuma Keira. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. Original music by Alex Portfelix. Sound mix by Nicola Rofast. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan. And the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. 
The Institute of Physics is campaigning for more young people from diverse backgrounds to study physics. For more information, please visit iop.org forward slash limitless.